Hello again, Future Now listeners. Welcome to IFTF's podcast, where we spotlight the researchers, scientists, and innovative thinkers who are shaping the trajectory of our collective future. I'm Jean Hagen, executive producer, and in this new season of Future Now, host Marina Gorbis, IFTF's executive director, will engage in thought-provoking conversations with guests involved in IFTF's Equitable Enterprise Initiative, which seeks to replace shareholder capitalism with a more humane, inclusive, and equitable approach to business practices. In today's episode, Marina talks with John Shelton, Associate Professor and Chair of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. He is the Vice President for Higher Education of the American Federation of Teachers Wisconsin, and together they discuss John's new book, The Education Myth, which challenges the idea that education is a solution to all economic and social inequities in society. Instead, John argues for a refocus on other policy levers and reforms in addition to education. We hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Hello, and welcome to Future Now, John Shelton. Really pleased to have you on this podcast. First, congratulations on your new book that just came out this year. The title is The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy. I just finished reading the book and I really enjoyed it. And we're going to dive much more deeply into the book. But before we start, can we just, can you just say a few words about yourself and your background? The reason I'm asking is because I just noticed on your bio that you bring so many different lenses to this conversation and you bridge so many different worlds. You're an academic, you're a teacher, you're a union organizer, you serve on city commissions. And that's pretty unique, I think, in academia to for people to be bridging these worlds. So maybe just a little bit of context of who you are and how you got to writing the book. Absolutely, Marina. And thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. So, so I started off as a teacher in K-12 and taught in, in Philadelphia in a very difficult neighborhood, Kensington, which, which right now is, I think, the there's been a series of stories about it being like the largest open air drug market in the country. Kensington very well, because one of our fellows is one of the leaders of Kensington Trust. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So you know Kensington. Yeah. So very difficult neighborhood to teach in and really just saw a lot of the inequalities that existed in you know, not just the U.S. education system, but you know, U.S. politics or in cities. And that convinced me that I needed to go back to grad school and learn more about how we got to where we are. So did a dissertation that looked at teacher unions as an important political discussion point in the late, in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and that finished that up in 2013 and got a job at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, which as many of your listeners probably know, at that point, we were in the middle of, at the, actually the beginning of, a pretty long attack on, on public employees and the, and the school system, including the university system. So. In 2011, Scott Walker passed Act 10, which effectively took away collective bargaining rights from meaningful collective bargaining rights from public employees in the state. And then there was a series of very draconian budget cuts to the UW system. So I came to UW-Green Bay and I'm a junior, junior faculty, tenure track faculty, and just thrust into a situation where I felt like, and a lot of people felt this way, but joined a, a movement of folks who just really felt like the only way we were going to have a future and that was sustainable and that served our students 
was if we organized. So I very quickly joined my union, ended up getting a leadership role there pretty quickly as well, especially having studied teacher unions and this being part of my academic interest that really made sense. And then just shortly after that, I think it was only, I think it was 2015, ended up running for a seat on the executive board for the American Federation of Teachers, Wisconsin. So now I'm involved at the state level and I'm president of my own union on campus at UW-Green Bay. So not only am I directing organizing efforts on our campus, but I'm also helping other locals to organize too. And to really organize in a context in which um, the right, I don't need to tell your listeners this, Wisconsin in many ways pioneered this path, had gone to war on higher education and had gone to yeah. war on things like the pursuit of truth, which Scott Walker tried to take out of the UW mission in 2015. Yeah, so, Wisconsin is like ground zero for a lot of labor battles, for a lot of battles uh, with education, educational institutions. So it's a perfect place in some that, ways. That's exactly right. And so in the context of that, and then of course, Trump getting elected, and I think a lot of us in Wisconsin took it very personally that Trump won the state of Wisconsin in 2016, just continue to get more involved in politics, really, and organizing. Um, my first book based on the dissertation called Teacher Strike, Public Education and the Making of a New American Political Order came out in 2017. And so obviously my scholarship was very much connected to the work that I was doing. And so there's a seamlessness that exists in my career, I think. Not everybody's activism and scholarship connects, I think, as, as well as mine tends to, but I've really cultivated that connection. Yeah, was, in fact, it's rare because there are very few incentives for academics to be out there in the world, organizing and participating. The incentives are for publishing, right? I think that's right. And fortunately, I've been able to make those kind of connections. But for me, I think to a certain extent, I have a different set of incentives. Like, I really feel very strongly that none of this is going to matter if we don't have a system of education in this state that actually serves our students and serves the community. So I'm willing to fight for it. And because of that's allowed me to get involved in local stuff as well. So I got appointed to the first ever Green Bay Equal Rights Commission a couple of years ago. And in the work that we did there, we really focused on making an argument that's similar to some of the things I talk about in the book, which is the idea of expanding social and economic rights for people right here in Green Bay. And we made the argument, everybody in our city is entitled to housing and put forward this uh, set of recommendations that I'm really personally proud of that we unveiled on Martin Luther King Day this year to honor the connection between racial justice and the right to housing. So yeah. those are some of the things that I'm doing. Obviously, I might be a little overextended, but it's, like it's really important work. Sure. And you chair something called democracy and justice studies. I imagine these are the kind of studies and departments that people like Scott Walker would love to eliminate or and are probably working hard to eliminate in places like Florida and yeah. Texas. So can you say more about that? Yeah. And first of all, we're fortunate not to have Scott Walker as governor. I was deeply involved in working to elect and reelect Governor Evers, who has really stood with the higher education folks in the state. But yeah, our department is interdisciplinary, and we focus on this question of democracy and social justice as a normative question. We believe that those things are important. Social justice is in the mission of our university, actually. And so for us, it's, we're interdisciplinary. We have historians, political, or sorry, political scientists, and sociologists in our department. 
And what we try to provide is really a lens for a multitude of lenses for students to understand that question, both historically and in the contemporary world, and to set them up to be activists themselves. So some of the students that we've had in recent years have gone on to become labor union organizers and very successful ones with some really prominent unions. They've gone on to do social justice oriented law. Uh, they've worked in nonprofits. They've done political work. And so our students are the ones that want to get involved. One of our graduating majors this year um, has become a highly outspoken racial justice and reproductive rights activist here. Her name's Hannah Beauchamp Pope in Green Bay. She ran for a state legislative seat in the last election and worked a lot to get students to come out and vote. She didn't win, but it, that did a lot to boost turnout in other races like the governor's race. And so those are the kinds of students that, that we produce and we're really proud of it. And in spite of all of the like headwinds we have to face in this state because of what's happened in the past 10 years, my department is the thing that I'm really most proud of. So I'm really Eric, thrilled to be the chair. It sounds like you're the closest to what I think of as a labor school where people can learn about labor and organizing, but also study philosophy and history and all the liberal arts and other kinds of subjects to give people a wider perspective. I've never really thought about it that way, but you're kind of right, actually. I might start describing ourselves that way. Yeah, there is a great exhibit here in the Tenderloin about a labor school that existed in San Francisco for almost 20 years which was organized by a union and provided workers with education on everything from unions and the workings of the union, but also produced theater productions and educated people in the arts and philosophy and history, the real education. Yeah, which, that, that's fascinating. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about that. Which kind of leads me to your book. And I just have to say, as I was reading your book, I was so happy that you wrote this because your main thesis of a kind of the education myth is something I've been trying to communicate for probably 10 years, if not more, and have found a lot of resistance to that or a lot of like, okay, yeah, we know, but hey, let's continue doing what we're doing. So that's one part of it. And the other part of it was that it sort of explained to me why I was getting this kind of like, oh, yeah, you're right, and the data shows this, and it is a myth, but hey, let's continue with the myth because of various interests. So before we start, let's just give you time to just outline your main thesis of the book. Yeah, and thank you. And I appreciate those kind words because this book is really meant to provoke us to think differently. And I know I think differently after thinking about this stuff and writing about it. So, so the education myth, right, simply defined is the idea that education and maybe more specifically investment in human capital uh, can magically overcome all of the other economic and social inequalities that exist in our society. And so what I argue in the book, trace essentially how Americans think about or have thought about what public education should do. And I had to go back to the nation's founding to do this, which was something I didn't think I was initially going to do. But wanted to really show the full sweep of how things changed over time. And so really for the first like 150 years of American history, Americans who are pushing for more public education really weren't doing it because they were arguing that American workers needed job skills. Now, I don't want to romanticize things, right? I mean, so you've got some of the things I talk about in the book are Thomas Jefferson, right, who pushes for free public education in Virginia, of course. That expands the promise of public education beyond elites, 
but doesn't include African-Americans or Native right. Americans who Jefferson thought didn't have the same capacities as, as whites. But, you know, Horace Mann in the 1830s and 40s pushing for public education to ensure that people are responsible citizens in a democracy. But African-Americans after the Civil War, right? One of the first things they're pushing for, as a great book by James Anderson points out, is public education. And in order to instill citizenship and create political equality, nothing about job skills. So that's really the kind of dominant way of thinking about education for a very long time. It doesn't mean that other people aren't pushing for skills. That does start to happen at a certain point. But the main way that working people in the late 19th and early 20th century were pushing for more economic equality was almost not related to education at all, right? They were pushing for things like labor unions and social reforms, minimum wage laws, workers' compensation, all those things. And that push really is made manifest in many ways in the New Deal, where you've got these significant reforms that institute at least partially some of those things. And then this big promise of what I call social democracy, right? And to me, the exemplar of that is FDR's second Bill of Rights speech in 1944, the Economic Bill of Rights, which basically says we've got a very different world than we had when the original Bill of Rights was written. We need a whole set of social and economic rights. Education's there, but it's, the, it's literally the last item on the list. So that promise continues to inform American politics from about the 40s through the 70s. But at the same time, this idea of human capital is invented right. by some economists, Theodore Schultz and Gary Becker, primarily at the University of Chicago in the 1950s and 60s. And so what I argue is that from about the 60s through the late 70s into the 80s, this promise of social democracy is literally competing in, in American politics with this growing push for human capital, the education myth, which offers easy answers because if you just invest in education, as the argument goes, then you don't need to change any of the other social and economic inequalities that exist. You don't need to empower workers, for example, because all they need to do is get the right education. And so then the second part of the book is how that myth continues to rise through prominence. And I'm sure we'll get into some of this, but it's right. everything from a nation at risk to the sort of Clinton DLC reforms in the 90s through No Child Left Behind. And then the very last part is, okay, so like what's happening now? And I argue that the myth is coming undone in some important ways. And I'm looking forward to getting into that conversation a bit. Yeah. And let's talk about that point in the 1940s of what we talk about as changing the register, where the register to us is the vocabulary, the frameworks we use for understanding reality. We've been talking a lot about Beth Berman's book. I don't know if you've seen it, read it, Thinking Like an Economist. She's a sociologist at the University of Michigan who kind of talks about how we changed our register, what we call register or frameworks, to economic words and vocabulary. So everything becomes an investment. It's capital. So we talk about human capital, social capital. We start investing in education. We invest in our health. So we're moving from that conversation and frameworks and register of rights, where health, if you look at FDR's second bill of rights, right? It's all about rights, rights to health, rights to education, rights to economic security, all these other rights. And it becomes, the conversation shifts to the language of finance, economics, and commodities. So it's all about investments. So say more about that moment and how and why it became so pervasive. It's like not all the ideas catch on, right? But this particular idea somehow caught on fire, and we're still living 
in that universe. Yeah. And so a lot of work was putting into creating that reality and it's going to take some work to undo it. You think about the term human capital. This was, it was fascinating to think about this when I did the research. Uh, Gary Becker in one of the works, I think it was the second or third edition of the book called Human Capital, talks about the fact that economists really struggled in the early days to be able to employ the term human capital because, and he actually sort of overtly says this, when people in the past talked about human capital, what they were actually talking about was literal humans who were used as capital, right? Enslaved mm -hmm. people. Slaves, yeah. Yeah. And so he says, well, we had to be careful about this in the early days and almost through like a lot of repetition, a different uh, definition for human capital. And if you think about what the term does, it completely inverts the relationship that actually exists, the labor relationships that actually exist under capitalism. I mean, it's a great sleight of hand if you think about it, because the way capitalism actually works is a worker sells their labor to somebody who is making a profit from the value they add to it. Right. You don't have to be a hardcore Marxist to like accept that idea. I ask my students this all the time. I'm like, you know, that job that you have at Quick Trip, Quick Trip is a local gas station here. Why is that company employing you? Are they doing it out of the goodness of their heart? No, they're paying you less than the actual amount of labor value that you are giving them, right? They know that they do those calculations. Otherwise, the employment relationship makes no sense. So the idea that a worker by adding more skills is investing in their own capital, it completely inverts the power dynamic, actually erases the power dynamic that exists under capitalism. It also dehumanizes people, yeah. right? In many ways, because capital is an abstract idea. So you don't have to deal with real humans. You just deal with them as human capital. Exactly. And so what you're saying to somebody is you're not selling your labor. You have your own capital and you're investing in yourself and then making your own profits, right? By like enhancing your labor power. And so the value of this, I mean, what happens is the, the promise of social democracy doesn't, it doesn't go away, right? When, you know, Gary Becker and Schultz invent this concept of human capital, it continues to be there, right? Social democracy, you've got, and during the Johnson administration under the war on poverty, you've got this real tension, right? I mean, on the one hand, you get things like Medicare and Medicaid, which is the closest we've ever come to universal healthcare in this country. But then you also get a bunch of policies that are aimed at improving the skills of the poor. And there were supposedly, right? Instead right. of asking why it is that those people are in spaces where they don't have jobs, <laughs> where jobs are not available. Right. And there was a lot of over that in the Johnson administration. You have things like Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph's freedom budget in the late 60s, which would have been, in my view, a much more effective way to deal with poverty because it would have guaranteed people essentially jobs and housing and healthcare and good education. You have Humphrey Hawkins in the 1970s, which is designed, it's a jobs guarantee effectively that Augustus Hawkins, one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus, Hubert Humphrey, this great Midwestern liberal, and Coretta Scott King were all pushing for. And so you've got those things happening at the same time that you've got economists arguing for human capital. And I think one of the things that happens is that the human capital argument is a much easier argument to make, right? Because what it means is you don't have to change anything. You don't have to deal with the inequalities that exist because if anybody can just overcome them by investing in education, well, everything's fine. I think one of the things that happened is this just became a really palatable argument for a lot of politicians, especially Democrats initially, honestly, to accept. When you said something really important that I want to emphasize, which is that 
I understand why this argument is very appealing to conservatives, to the right wing, because you don't have to change anything. You don't have to improve working conditions. You don't have to do any other policy interventions if it's all about human capital. But what is interesting is why the liberal side or supposedly liberal side, the Democrats have bought into this idea. And to me, like that is actually explains why when I do conversations and talk about how education by itself is not the solution to the kind of economic inequalities and wealth inequalities we have, people sort of, they nod their heads and then they continue promoting this policy intervention as the only viable policy intervention. Right. So it's such a great question. And something really important happens in the 1970s. Okay. The Johnson administration in many ways was committed to a series of social democratic reforms, even if it coexisted with this human capital argument. In the 70s, there's a huge level of economic crisis. A lot of it is international, right? Other economies are literally catching up in terms of manufacturing capacity to the United States. And so one of the things that happens is corporations, not that most corporations ever totally accepted the kind of New Deal labor piece that came in the 40s and 50s, but corporations really start to go on the attack in the 1970s. And I don't get into this so much in the book, but I mentioned it a little bit. The competitiveness argument and competition from China and Japan and other places, right? We need yeah, to they're engaging in capital flight. They're moving production to places where there's cheaper labor in the U.S. South, in places like Mexico, and they're busting unions. If, you wanna, if your listeners want to read a great book about this, read Lane Wyndham's book, Knocking on Labor's Door, where she points out that in the 1970s, workers, th this was like one of the best opportunities to have a truly more equal multiracial working class because after the Civil Rights Act and the and equal employment things happening in the 60s, more women, more African-Americans and other minorities are getting access to good blue collar jobs and they're trying to unionize. And this was the moment that employers really started to pioneer something that you hear about now. It's come up a lot with Starbucks, for example, the union avoidance industry, putting millions of dollars into high priced attorneys who figure out how to violate both the letter and the spirit of the National Labor Relations Act. And so for that reason, you see a lot of these organizing drives just destroyed. So while that's happening in blue collar livelihoods, there's a veritable war on blue collar livelihoods. The one place where people are actually seeing their wages go up are people that get college degrees, right? And there's more and more people getting college degrees. And this is the fruit of this massive expansion of higher education that comes starting with the GI Bill but then in lots of states, actually, like, like Wisconsin, that put huge investments into higher education because they realized its importance, not just for jobs, but for the civic capacity of their citizens. And so one of the things that I document, and I learned a lot about this from Lily Geismer's book, Don't Blame Us, that's about the shift toward the professional class in the Democratic Party, is that Democrats <clears throat> who are elected in the 1970s become increasingly responsive to professional class constituencies. Mm -hmm. So organized labor, civil rights, that's are, who are getting elected, people like a young Joe Biden, like Jimmy Carter, who I talk about extensively, they see themselves as more responsible to this professional class, these professional class folks. And in particular, this idea that the economy is a meritocracy, where if you go and get an education, you do well. And I think if you kind of trace that forward and look at 
some really prominent Democrats, people like Bill Clinton, who grew up in very modest means, Barack Obama, who grew up in very modest means, ended up in elite institutions, did well for themselves. You can show them the data and say, look, this actually isn't a meritocracy for most people. Maybe there's a few exceptions and it's working for you, but their own personal stories conflict with that. And I think in a lot of the spaces where we try to talk about this with people, it's hard for them to accept that because their own personal narrative tells them you succeeded in this because you did well through the education system, right? I'm a product of that too, right? Yeah. How you are. And so that's what makes it difficult for people to, especially in like professional class spaces, to wrap their minds around it. Yeah, but it's interesting because they saw their personal sort of advancement as a result of education because that was a personal experience, but they totally failed to notice the kind of the invisible infrastructure that enabled that, which is the larger economy, the all the GI Bill, all of this ability to purchase housing, making it easier, not for everybody, but particularly for white people. So the kind of invisible infrastructure that enabled it was completely ignored, but the focus was, okay, I succeeded because I got education and I pulled myself up by the bootstraps, which is the basic belief of the conservatives that it's your personal responsibility, you have agency to succeed and you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps only if you put some effort into it. That's the idea of meritocracy. That's absolutely right. And one of the really important aspects to this is that, especially after Reagan got elected in the 80s, you've got the Democratic Leadership Council, which is formed in the mid-1980s in response to Reagan's two electoral victories in 80 and 84. And their premise, the DLC was always an elite institution, right? It was built by party elites and essentially served wealthy donors. But their entire premise was for us to win elections, we need to move to the center. We need to take on more of the ideology of the right. And I think they were wrong about that. I mean, Democrats yeah. continued to control Congress during those years. There were very specific reasons, actually, why Reagan won in 80 and 84. But the lesson they took from that was take on this kind of idea of meritocracy, take on the bootstraps mentality. And right. that's the you that Clinton comes from in, in the 90s. And I think there, there's this kind of narrative about Clinton that he only turned in that direction after Republicans got control of Congress in 94. I don't believe that. I think that the record actually tells us that he was moving in that direction well before that and had politically tried to embrace those things. And education was really important for him because it allowed him as a Democrat to still run because he could be successful because he could say, yes, everybody is responsible for their own individual outcomes. But the difference is what we're going to give people is investment in human capital. And that's going to be the thing that we do as Democrats. That's what makes us different. And it was a tragic mistake in my view. Yeah. And that kind of explains to me, and what you point out is the problem is not so much the Republicans and the right wing, because that's their theories and it fits with those theories. But the problem is really the Democrats and the more liberals in society that bought into this myth that education is the solution. And we can ignore all these other elements of our society and our economy and all the other faults and just focus that. So that's an easy explanation. And the problem is not so much the right wing. The problem is the mainstream Democrats and that they bought into this myth. Yes. And now might be a good time to reveal that I am married to a state legislator in Wisconsin who is a Democrat. So when I criticize Democrats for doing this, 
I'm not criticizing her, right? Because she's, I think, at the forefront of trying to push us beyond this way of thinking. It's hard, right? It's hard. And I think what makes it difficult is that Republicans, the trajectory their party has gone is so problematic that I don't want this to, to this argument to come across saying like Democrats are responsible for everything. That's not what I'm doing. But I do think for us to be successful on the left, and I am very much on the left, the way for us, in in order for us to be successful, we have to understand how our progenitors, the people who came before us, have left us in a situation that makes it very difficult for us to operate and how we shift out of that and how we come up with something that's going to actually defend and deepen democracy in this country. And it's interesting because you come to this argument as a historian. And when I uh, came to this realization that there is a myth and it's that education by itself is not a solution to our economic problems, uh, economic inequality and wealth inequality, I was looking at data. And one very simple piece of data I always start with is, look, we have the highest educated labor force in history. I think like the number of people with bachelor's degree was under 10% in the 1960s. And now it's close to 45%, maybe even more than that. And wages at the same time did not budge. Wages did not change. So it's very hard just with this very simple piece of data to make the argument that education by itself improves people's economic outcomes and improve their economic mobility. And then there's tons of other data that I usually quote in my presentations, like return on degrees have been going down. There is data from the Federal Reserve, cohort by cohort, generation by generation. Um, So it's interesting how we converge that, but from different sort of data sources and different ways of looking at this issue. And you probably know, you know, that book, The Race Between Technology and Education by Golden and Katz. Oh, well, you, sh- you should check that out because that was, uh, that came out in like 2008, a couple of uh, economists. And uh, I think it's been pretty widely cited. Th- their thesis is that the reason that inequality in the United States has increased, obviously they're writing from 2008, but from their vantage point in the previous 20 or 30 years or whatever, is because Americans weren't increasing level of educational attainment right. quickly enough to keep up with technology. Right. And, and it completely ignores all of the other things that were happening, right? Like how free trade made blue collar jobs more insecure, how increasingly difficult for workers to unionize, how the minimum wage had lost its power, yeah. lack of public investment in higher education in K-12, all of these things. And it speaks to the reality that, that you're talking about, right? I mean, and I would say even beyond the data, talk to just ordinary working people, even many of them who have college degrees and they know it, right? I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because when I was talking to my students in 2013, 14, 15, 16, around the few years before I started this, they were all basically saying to me, well, we know we have to go to college. It's our only path to a good job, but we don't really think it's going to happen. We're pretty pessimistic about it. Like I heard that from so many people and many of those folks they have not seen the kind of dividend from going to college that we're all promised. Certainly people who go to elite institutions are seeing that and that's raising the median. But from people who, many people, I should say, who go to a place like UW-Green Bay, they're not seeing the college wage premium and they know it, right? Subjectively and in terms of their economic outlook, how they think about the future. And so for that reason, like every space I brought this book into, that's like basically a space that's not for academics, everybody's looking at me like, yes, like we get this totally makes sense. 
And you see these young people now, many of them who have college degrees, look at the Starbucks organizing drive right now. Yeah. Many of those people are in college or have college degrees and they're Starbucks baristas, which is not right. to integrate that, but that's certainly not something that you need a college degree for. And they know it. And you bring up something interesting. We did a series of interviews with low-wage workers throughout California. These are people who have multiple gig jobs and they're working probably 60 to 80 hours a week just trying to make a living, have various kinds of health issues, stresses, been laid off. Um, and at the end of it, we always ask people, well, what do you think would make it life easier for you? What would make it better? And they always talked about themselves. It's like, I need to learn to save more. These are people who are barely making a living. I need to take this college course. So this kind of myth, unfortunately, the insidious impact of having this myth so widely accepted is that people are, it's like with the obesity epidemic or diabetes epidemic, it's sort of like personal responsibility. Oh, if I eat better, if I exercise more, we can get rid of this without ignoring all the other things like the quality of food, the availability of food, the incentives, all kinds of other things. It's sort of the same thing. I think, unfortunately, for a lot of working people, they've bought into this myth that it's about them and it's their personal responsibility, sort of investing in yourself. Sure. Yeah. No. And it's funny that you mentioned that, that example of you know, exercise and personal health. Because I was actually just giving a talk last night at UW Oshkosh, which is about an hour away from here, closest to other UW campus. And somebody brought up that, that very idea. They said, look at how with something like obesity, we've been told that exercise is the answer. Like, isn't that kind of similar to this human capital idea? And I thought that was really interesting because it's true. I mean, if you think about it, if you just tell people to exercise more, it ignores the food infrastructure in this country, ignores food deserts and all the other inequalities that we know exist, the time to be able to cook healthy food, all of these things, and just tells people, well, you're not exercising enough, so it's your fault. And it strikes me, one of the things that is so difficult about the argument I'm making in this book, I don't mean difficult for me to make, but difficult for people to accept, is they've been told the opposite of, they've been told that education is the answer their entire lives. I mean, not only, I'm 44, not only have I been told this my entire life, my parents were told this their entire lives and told me. So how, and when you're dealing with a, a country where it's very difficult, I mean, you face overwhelming odds to form a labor union in just about every field where politicians have not really looked out for you very much by ensuring that you have things like healthcare and you can go bankrupt if you get, if yeah. you happen to get cancer. And you know, that when the housing crisis happened in, in 2008, that the banks got saved, but individual mortgage holders didn't get their homes saved. It's hard to rationally think any other way, right? It's hard to think collectively because the only examples you've seen of people being successful are a small number of people who have gotten an education and been successful, but that just doesn't work for most people. Exactly. So let's talk about these sort of insidious impacts or of this myth that education is a solution to all of our economic inequality issues and social issues. So obviously blaming the victim, people thinking that it's their responsibility, but what other, and focusing on education as a solution and ignoring all these other policy levers and reforms that are needed but what about like the insidious impacts of that myth on the education system itself and how 
that has been sort of shifted from thinking about education being essential to our democracy and citizenship to education being about utilitarian skill building? Yeah, that's such a great question. And, you know, I've done a lot of conversations about this book, and I feel like I don't talk about this enough. I don't get asked that enough. So thank you. You can go all the way back to A Nation at Risk in 1983, right, which is this commission on education that Reagan's Secretary of Education, Terrell Bell, convened actually because he wanted to save the Department of Education because Reagan wanted to ax it. And, you know, what it essentially argues is that it's 1983. You've got this is the Reagan recession, right? Unemployment's high. It's after years of inflation, although inflation's going down by that point and people losing their jobs in blue collar industries. And the argument that a nation at risk makes is that the reason that other countries' industries are better than the United States are doing better, like Japan, is because their education system is better, right? They're making the argument that education reform is necessary based on almost no evidence that the education system actually had any problems. In fact, the education system was probably getting better in the 70s and early 80s. But that pushed this narrative that it was, it's not that it wasn't there before that, but really popularized it, that this sort of like decades of this education reform narrative, that teachers are not doing a good enough job, uh, that they, now I'm not, Nation of Risk didn't make the argument that teachers needed to be disciplined. Actually, they called for paying teachers more. But, you know, that kind of narrative led into decades after that of uh, efforts to discipline teachers. So one of the biggest things Clinton did as governor of Arkansas was to push for additional testing of teachers, with the implication being that the reason that students weren't getting a good enough education in Arkansas and thus the economic competitiveness of Arkansas wasn't where it needed to be was because teachers weren't doing a good enough job. That reform impulse continues into the 90s, and that's how we end up getting No Child Left Behind, of course, which the entire premise of that, I mean, look at all the conversations in Congress about No Child Left Behind, and I've looked at a lot of them. It's like literally every person on both sides of the aisle is saying, well, yeah, of course, education is necessary for us to be economically competitive, and so we have to make sure that schools are doing a good job, and that means making sure that they're disciplined when they don't. Take that into the Obama years when Obama appoints Arnie Duncan as secretary of education. Duncan had been CEO of the Chicago schools and pushed for school turnarounds and charters and disciplining teachers. And a key component of Obama's education policy was this thing called race to the top, which it was devious in how it led to so much reform with actually not all that much money. They forced states to apply for grants to get funding from the federal government. Not all states would get them. In fact, only I think a handful did. But in order to even be eligible for the grant, they had to agree to do things like tie teachers' performance reviews to test scores and make it easier to implement charter schools. And the entire premise of this was that the education system needed to serve job training. So what it's led yep. to over the past 20 or 30 years is deprofessionalization of the teaching profession, right? Teachers now have to teach to these standardized tests, Te holding teachers accountable for the poverty of their students largely, right? I mean, students who are traumatized and have mental health issues are, they're not gonna do well on, they're very unlikely to do well on standardized tests, no matter how well the teacher does it all. And so it's led not just to deprofessionalization, but that in turn has led to teachers being disempowered. In states like Wisconsin, it's led to massive teacher turnover and Act 10 kind of larded on top of that. So we struggle to even find anybody going into schools of education now. 
And when you look at surveys about whether people want their kids to become teachers in just the past few years, a majority of Americans now say they would not want their kid to become a teacher. That's a huge shift from just 10 years ago. Overall dumbing down of the population, right? Because why teach history? Why teach philosophy? Why teach literature? It's not going to get you a good job. Exactly. And so when you see students now coming into college, why would they think any differently? They've been told this their entire lives and their teachers have been forced to think about teaching this way because they've been told you have to be accountable for the long-term yeah. economic outcomes of your students. And it also shows up in investments, right? The things that school districts invest in are things that are going to have tangible outcomes on standardized tests, not art, theater, dance, civics, all these other things that we know students need to have well-rounded and good lives as democratic citizens. It's been a massive shift and our education system has suffered significantly. It's to the point where it's going to take a lot of work to come back from it. It's interesting. I don't know, in your experience, as you talk about the book to different audiences, one of my favorite experiences, I was speaking to a group of community college staff and faculty and showing them data, debunking the myths of what I call the zombie idea that education will lead to a necessarily or degrees by themselves will lead to better economic outcomes. And at the end of it, they said, thank you so much. We're so relieved because we've been blamed for this. And now we understand that's not the case. How can we take this message to more universities, colleges, and schools? Yeah, that, that's such an important point. I have a good friend named Neil Krauss, who's a professor at UW-River Falls. And Neil has a book coming out in October, who you'll want to have on this show too, called The Fantasy Economy. Great title, by the way. Yeah, it's an incredible title. And Neil says, has said something to me all the time, and I have, my, I have his permission to use this, and I use it all the time now because it's such a pithy way to put it. Education does not control the labor market, right? And for too long, we've implicitly accepted the notion that we somehow do and understand why, right? Because the argument, especially in higher ed and especially community colleges, which are even harder up for public support than, say, four-year colleges, we have to play by the, these rules. And so every university administrator in this country, practically, if they, unless they're an elite institution like Harvard or something, they're basically saying some version of, we train future workforces, please invest in us. Right. And you know that notion, which is born of expediency, has degraded the higher education experience at every level in this country. And it actually hasn't strengthened us. It's weakened us because it's made it easier for people who have an ideological ax to grind, look at what's happening in Florida, to go after us. So this being this podcast, and I'm with Institute for the Future, let's look at the future. And do you see any signals of hope of changing that register and getting out of this whole myth of human capital and education being all about jobs and these utilitarian notions, do you see these signals of hope and how difficult do you think it is to shift this conversation? Marina, I could not do the things that I do every day if I weren't optimistic. And maybe I'm optimistic. You probably know the Gramscian term, optimism of the will. Maybe yeah. that's what I have. I don't know. But I think I'm deeply optimistic right now. And there's a few reasons for that. As I get to at the end of the book, the last five or six years, I think, we've seen the education myth, if not being destroyed, at least 
cracks emerging, right? I'm seeing space for us to really challenge this. First of all, I'm not the only person writing about this, right? There's Neil, there's been a number of others. There's a book called The Meritocracy Trap. Uh, There's Michael Sandel's book, uh, The Tyranny of Merit, which is a really important book and people should be reading that. Daniel Allen has written about this stuff. So there seems to be a growing literature around this and people are talking about it. And I just happened to, I think, be here in this moment. Politically, I think this is coming undone too. I think it's happening in both parties. So go back to the Republican Party and what's happened and what's happened with Trump, for example. So, you know, Trump back in 2016, and I document this in the last chapter of the book, talks about how the unemployment rate that people are touting, which was very low, Democrats were touting specifically, that was very low. He said, everybody knows that's basically not right. And he lied about virtually everything, but this was one place where he was capturing the way people were feeling about this and pushing for revision of NAFTA. And one of the things Trump actually did was revise NAFTA and organized labor lauded it. It wasn't a huge thing, but the premise that people deserve a good livelihood, whether they have a college degree or not, that was one of the things that Trump said. And I think we have to really be honest about why that resonated with some people, right? I know Trump's very complicated and there were a number of people who voted for him simply because they were white supremacists or whatever. And I don't want to discount that. But some of them were, I think, found that there was resonance in the idea that he would, there would be some hope for bringing back blue collar jobs, even if he had no plan for doing it. On the left, I think we've seen a huge challenge to the education myth too, both at the grassroots from unions like the Chicago Teachers Union that have been using contract negotiations to say, our students don't deserve just, their families don't deserve just to have a place to live if they get a good job and the right human capital. Everybody deserves that, right? And so the CTU has pushed the the school district to invest in affordable housing. That's huge, right? Those kinds of things. By the way, there's lots of data that indicates that actually having a home is more important in terms of economic mobility than education. That's fascinating. I'd like to see some of that. That must, the research think tank produces data. Yeah, intuitively, that makes sense to me. And then, of course, you have the Bernie Sanders movement. He's very popular among young people. The same workers who are organizing at Starbucks right now, right? These are at least the same demographic who are basically saying, yeah, we're getting college degrees or we're going to college and we can't afford to finish college because of the economic insecurity that's out there. And we need to do things differently. This whole thing that the guys have been selling us for decades about we're going to help you get the right education and that's going to help you be successful. The people that voted for Sanders were saying, no, like we're tired of this. And so I I think if you look at where the Biden administration has gone, for instance, Biden's a politician, very good politician, in fact, even though I have my disagreements with him, but he said something really important in his last State of the Union address. I don't know how many people caught it, but he basically said, everybody deserves to have a good job and they shouldn't have to move to get it. And for so long, that was like the argument for Democrats was like, well, yeah, you can have a good job, but you might have to go where the jobs are, or you might have to go get the right education. What he was saying there is you can have your community. You can, you can have the life that you want and get a good job. You don't have to take on this other persona or take on this extra level of education. And even though that was subtle, I think that was a big shift. So between that and the young people that are turning out to vote, right? We just had a state Supreme Court election in our state yep, where young people you should have seen, you should see the numbers on our campuses. They were voting for reproductive rights, but they were also voting because they, I've talked to many of them, they felt like their future 
was very much under duress. And so I'm encouraged because I think, number one, you're seeing a greater number of people in this country rejecting the idea of the education myth, either implicitly or explicitly. And I also think there's this idea in history of science of a paradigm shift, right? Mm -hmm. Where the more we talk and the more we bring in these ideas that challenge the paradigm that we've been living with for, for the last 40 or 50 years, at first, people find a way to reject those ideas, right? To find a way to not make them fit. But eventually, the way a paradigm shift happens is the overwhelming uh, avalanche of evidence ma makes it so that the paradigm can't hold up anymore. And I do think that's happening right now with the education myth. Now, the question is, which way do we go, right? Do we get Trump and DeSantis and reactionary populism? Because that's a real possibility. Or do we figure out a way to actually secure economic and social rights for all Americans? That's the choice. And, that, and we have to go on the latter path. Or do we become so polarized that the education system in Florida looks radically different from the education system in Wisconsin or in California? And what kids are learning in school in these places will be very different. Yeah. If what happens in Florida, depending on the outcome of that, it might not even be worth it to call that an education system. If people actually can't get access to the truth, that's not education. That is indoctrination, which ironically is the thing that they accuse us of doing. I agree with you. I'm hopeful because of people like you writing books, because of the work we're doing and many others. I think it will take time probably, but I do see that there is a kind of a shift in the paradigm or we call the register and we have to do everything we can to accelerate that shift. Yes. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for coming on this podcast and keep in touch. Yeah, thanks so much. And we'll keep elevating this message. Let's do it. Thanks so much for listening. Institute for the Future is the world's oldest continuously running futures research and educational organization. At IFTF, we believe people can harness the power of imagination to awaken a sense of agency in their own futures and drive change in themselves and their organizations. Be sure to subscribe to the Future Now podcast and find out more about IFTF by visiting iftf.org. Until next time.